If you would turn with me in God's Word to 1 Timothy, we tonight would like to conclude our sermon series on 1 Timothy, looking at the final verses of the book. But I'd like to read and go back and read the opening of the letter before we read the end of the letter. And so to 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1. The Apostle calls Timothy to guard the gospel, and we're reminded of that need for that as expressed in the opening words of 1 Timothy 1. At verse 1, God's holy word, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And now we turn to the end of 1 Timothy at verse Chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, by professing it some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for this letter that your Spirit wrote and preserved for us. And we thank you for the time you've given us to consider it. We pray that its truths will be deeply embedded within our hearts to direct our thinking and our believing and our living. We pray, Lord, that you'd bless us again tonight, that you'd come near to us and help us to understand and to embrace the things that our Savior speaks to us. In Jesus' name, we pray for your help. Amen. Well, saints of the Lord, the letter First Timothy ends where it began, as you can see. The letter opened with Paul's great concern for the truth. And in fact, this is really, if you read through the, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, this is really the, the concern that Paul has at, at each of these letters. His concern is for the truth, for the preservation of the truth. And here Paul had expressed from the outset of 1 Timothy that they were false teachers, that there were those who wanted to be teachers but didn't know what they were saying. 
And he was warning Timothy about this. And now the apostle returns to it at the end of the letter. And he returns to it with a great deal of urgency. He says, oh, Timothy. It's rather unusual for Paul here to, to appeal by name to him in the midst of his letter. Oh, Timothy. It's a, it's a personal and heartfelt appeal with, with a bit of emotion and urgency and earnestness. And it reminds us that, that this issue of guarding the gospel, preserving the truth, is, is significant. I do think that, that we tend to suffer from a conceit in which we assume that we could never lose the truth. That we could not lose the truth. We, we look at errors and false teachings and we kind of laugh them off and talk about how bad they are, but it could never happen to me. I could never lose the truth. We belong to Reformed Church. We have, we have Orthodox confessions. We're the people of the truth. We, we couldn't lose the truth. But what happened to the churches of Asia Minor? What happened to the church in Ephesus? What happened to these churches Paul planted? What's happened to the great churches of America, the churches that were established here at the founding of our country? Strong churches in doctrine. What's happened to the bastions of truth, solid reformed seminaries like Princeton? What has happened to Christian colleges and Christian pastors and Christian leaders? So many who have fallen deeply are engaged in in teaching false doctrine today. The loss of the truth is a serious problem. There are many gospel substitutes. There are many things people move on to they think are more important or more relevant or more truthful. There are many people who used to attend church, no longer attend church. There are many families in our country who who had a a long history, a great pedigree of, of Christian parents and grandparents and so forth, generations of faithfulness, people that don't go to church at all today. Should never be so conceited as to think that the truth simply dwells with us and we could never lose it. We must not forget it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle we're engaged in. I think one of our problems today is that we tend to interpret everything through a political lens. And we keep thinking it's a political battle. And the Word of God is saying to us, there's a spiritual battle. This isn't just about politics and and what team you're on. There's a spiritual battle. We have a great enemy called Satan, and his number one weapon is the lie. It's deceit. It's untruth. And the number one thing he does is attack the truth of the gospel. We have a role to play. The first application of our text tonight comes to pastors and elders, right? It, if Timothy, a, a pastor, preacher, is the one being addressed here to guard the gospel, then the, the first application would be for office bearers tonight. But it's not just for office bearers. It's for every member of the church. So we know what to pray for. We know what to encourage in our office bearers. We know what to do in our own hearts, in our own home, and in our world. We are to guard the truth. Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Let's hear that call tonight. I think we could say three things about it. First of all, it's a calling to prize the gospel as a a sparkling treasure has been entrusted to us. And then secondly, it's a calling to guard it in view of all the threats. And then thirdly, it's a calling to trust this gospel as the source 
of our ongoing strength. Well, first of all, the Apostle Paul refers to the gospel or the apostolic teaching as a deposit. The New King James here says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. But you could also translate it, guard the deposit entrusted to you. The deposit. The word refers to property that was entrusted to a person for safekeeping. You know, even in the Old Testament, there was a law about this. Leviticus chapter 6. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping, then he has to restore it and bring a trespass sacrifice and so forth. But there was a law in the Old Testament about, about how you dealt with what somebody entrusted to you. In days of the Old Testament, they didn't have safe deposit boxes and so forth and, and great safes. Uh, maybe if you're going to go on a journey, you would take your most valuable possessions and entrust them to somebody you trusted and say, keep this for me. But sometimes people who aren't so noble would lie about this. He never gave me anything. And so God had a law about that. Here, the gospel, the truth that the apostle has been preaching and teaching and is passed on to Timothy is spoken of as this treasure that's deposited with Timothy for safekeeping. I wonder what's the most valuable thing anybody's ever entrusted to you. A tool or their car or their house keys. Undoubtedly, it's, it's, it's a child, right? If you've ever had a babysitter, you have deposited your children the babysitter. You do not expect to come home and have the babysitter say, well, I don't know what happened. There were some kids here. I don't know where they went. I mean, you expect them to care for what's been put into their care. But the greatest treasure, of course, is the gospel of Christ. It's a glorious jewel. It's worth a great deal. And one of the problems that we have is that we don't always value the gospel. If on the one hand we think we can never lose the truth, on the other hand we don't always view the truth of the gospel as being this gleaming treasure of inestimable worth, do we? John Calvin preached a sermon on this passage, the Reformed Father of the 16th century. He said, if we really knew the worth and importance of the gifts which God has bestowed on us, we'd be more careful to preserve them. But because we are so attached to the fleeting things of this world... We value little spiritual gifts and they perish through our neglect. We're often dazzled by the things of this world. I was thinking this week, you know, how much time don't we devote to preserving and to studying how to preserve the things of this world? Right, like investments. Maybe we read a magazine or we listen up our ears to, to how to take care and preserve our investments. We, we read sometimes about how to care for our clothes, the proper way to wash them. We become experts in house maintenance, how to care for a home. We, we learn about car polishes and so forth to preserve our cars. And sometimes with the gospel and the word of God, we just wander about as if this thing just take care of itself. We come to church once in a while, read a bit here and there, but no real studying as to how to preserve the gospel. But it's a glorious treasure. It's the sparkling message of reconciliation that God, the eternal, sent his eternal son into this world to take up our nature and to hang on that cursed cross and to bear that eternal penalty against us, to bear God's wrath. 
and to win for us eternal life and to purchase for us the power of the Holy Spirit and to set us free from slavery to Satan and to give us an eternal inheritance. This is glorious news. And it's God's news. It's God's news. When the apostle says to Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, then one thing that's very clear is that Timothy did not create the gospel. Timothy did not invent the gospel. It is something outside of Timothy that was given to Timothy. Right? Paul said in that in the opening words that we read, the apostle Paul spoke of the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Well, it's very clear the Apostle Paul didn't invent the gospel. When on the road to Damascus, he's going to try to wipe out the gospel. And as he's visited by Christ and he's saved and he's called to be an apostle now. Clearly, the gospel is not Paul's idea. And now Paul says to Timothy, I've, I've deposited now the gospel with you. I've passed it on to you. And you're not to be creative. You're not to amend it or add to it. You're not to try to improve it. The Christian minister has been, has been given a sacred trust, and he is to preserve it pure and undefiled. He's to teach it and proclaim it and pass it on as he received it. No minister gets to make up his own theology. It's divine revelation by God's infallible word. Now, our culture believes that anything new is better, generally speaking. If it's new, it's better, Right? And the church follows along here sometimes. We are, as a church culture in America, a, a culture of fads, right? Whatever the, the latest book is, whatever the latest Christian guru says, then everybody jumps on it. We all got to have that book and read that thing and do that Bible study. And that comes out of this idea that the new is always better. And yet God says that the gospel is not something new, it's a deposit of old. The gospel was conceived in the heart and mind of God from eternity. And it was worked out in his perfect time, the fullness of time, when he sent his son. It's God's gospel. When Paul tells Timothy to preserve it, he's talking about everything the apostle has taught and written, including this very letter. This letter is, is the good news. This letter is the apostolic instruction for the church. This letter and the Apostle Paul has proclaimed in, in very clear terms in this letter, the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. At 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. These glorious nuggets that summarize the gospel. But it's the whole letter, it's the whole word, it's everything that Timothy is to seek to preserve. And for that, the church is accountable. In the letter of Jude, we read, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. 
It's a great expression, isn't it? The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Do you remember in the book of Ezra when, when Ezra is called of the Lord to go from Persia to Jerusalem, right? All the captives have been in Babylon and now Persia took over. But, but now another group's going to go back from Babylon and now Persia to Jerusalem. And Ezra is called by the Lord to this task. And the Persian king, Artaxerxes, give him some permission to go back. And in fact, Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, said, I'm going to give you all this wealth to take back for the house of God. And then what does Ezra do? Remember this? Ezra separates 12 of the leaders of the priests and he weighs out to them the silver and the gold and the articles, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were present had offered. So he's got all this weight of gold and silver and these uh, utensils and that the king has given, that the people, the Israelites there in Persia have given. And now Ezra takes it and he weighs it out to these priests. And then he says to them, you are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites in Jerusalem. And so in Persia, he weighs them out. He no doubt writes down how much has been entrusted to each of them. And they've got to make this long journey from Persia to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, they have to weigh all these things again and say, is it all there? Does it measure up? Do you have all the gold to deliver to us at the house of God that was entrusted to your care? That's how we're to look upon the gospel. It's a glorious treasure committed to your trust. It is the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And we're to prize it, knowing that we will have a day of accountability. When Jesus Christ comes back and he says to his people, his office bearers first, but also to every single one of us who have known the gospel, did you hold on to it? Is it all there? Have you preserved it? So we're to prize it as a sparkling treasure. But secondly tonight, then we're to guard it in view of the constant threats. Notice that secondly. We are to guard it in view of the constant threats. When the apostle calls Timothy to guard the gospel, or when we hear tonight this this summons, right, to guard the gospel, we're thinking about that. What's the threat? How would we guard it and preserve it? Maybe in our minds we're thinking, you know, I guess it means... We need to make sure that these words don't get lost. I don't remember who I was talking to, but we were talking about the scriptures and the electronic media. And they said something to the effect about, who knows, of course, what's going to happen with our electronics. We need to preserve some written words, some hard copies, in case all electronic copies are wiped out or something. Okay, well, that's probably true. It's good to have hard copies. We're thankful even today for the old manuscripts that are preserved. But let me ask you tonight, is our greatest danger that that the words themselves are going to get lost? Is is that the greatest danger we face in this country on this evening, that, that suddenly all the Bibles will be gone and nobody can find the scriptures? Well, certainly not. The greatest danger is that liars will reinterpret them so that we can't properly comprehend. 
or that various vain philosophies will invade our hearts so that we don't listen to what God says, or the greatest threat has been for a long time in this country is materialism. That the word of God just doesn't seem relevant because we believe that happiness in life consists in the abundance of possessions. That life consists of what we have and what we own and the vacations we're able to take. And therefore, the word's not really relevant because we don't see our biggest problem being anything the word's speaking to. Our biggest problem is our finances or our health or whatever it might be. How do we guard the gospel? The only way to preserve the gospel is by knowing it and teaching it, defending it against the lies. A good offense, right? That's the best defense. The Apostle Paul will say to Timothy in his next letter in chapter 2, chapter, chapter 1, verse 13, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. Hold fast that pattern of sound words. This is what catechism instruction is. It's learning a pattern of sound words. There are some people who think that catechism instruction, of course, learning doctrine, that's, that's dry and irrelevant and doesn't really hit us where we need to be hit. But it's really the opposite. If, if the only thing our children know is that Jesus died for sinners and loves me, humanly speaking, it's quite unlikely they'll stand for Christ 10 years from now. Because you, you, you can't, simply with those words, Jesus died for me, That's not enough, is it, to defend against the lies of Satan? Satan's lies are subtle. He uses partial truths. And we we need to know the scriptures and, and the teaching of the scriptures in such a way as to recognize the falsehoods. One of the most discouraging visits I went on was to a retired couple who in their, I guess, maybe early 70s, as I visited with them, so they had a question for me. They wanted, these were members of the church, they wanted to know if Jesus is God. Because their, their 40-year-old son who lived with them had pointed to scriptures which said Jesus didn't know something. He didn't know the time or the hour, and so he insisted Jesus was not God. Now that's a, that's a good question, isn't it, when you're a child and learning the gospel? Yeah, we have some sayings. that How does this all fit together? He's man, and he's God, and he's man, and he, he says things like this, and how should that be interpreted? But if you're 70 years old, and you've been in the church for decades, and you're still asking the question, is Jesus God? Then you haven't taken very seriously what the apostle is saying here about guarding the gospel. We guard the gospel by knowing the gospel, by studying the doctrines, By looking at our creeds, which confess without equivocation that Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man. There's great value in knowing doctrine. Doctrine is just teaching. We need to know the teachings of the Bible. Take a look at the Athanasian Creed sometime. We should should probably recite that again some Sunday evening. 
But it's so particular and it's so specific. And, and we wonder, what is all this minutia, it seems, and all this repetition? And the answer is that the lies that were being propagated sounded so much like the truth. Our parents had to cut with a very sharp knife and say, no, not that, and no, not that, but only this. It will not do just to know that Jesus died for me. It won't ultimately do. We have to be people of the book who know the word, who stand on the fullness of the counsel of God written in the scriptures. And so we guard the truth by supporting faithful seminaries, demanding of seminary teachers that they teach the truth, by by having catechism in Sunday school classes where we engage in the proclamation and the teaching of the truth, by being fathers and husbands who lead in our homes with a study of the word, by being mothers and fathers who instruct our children. And don't fall prey to this minimalist style that thinks, well, we read a Bible story here or there, and that's good enough. Now we can get on to all the other things we do. We have sports activities, and we have all these things we want. No, guard the truth. Guard the truth. We also guard it by keeping clear consciences. You know, whenever we wander from the Lord and refuse to humble ourselves and turn back, whenever our consciences are not clear, then we are open to the attacks of the evil one. Find a minister who's had an unbiblical divorce and has not repented, then it's very unlikely he's going to be preaching the truth about marriage. Find parents who themselves are not resolved before the Lord to live for his glory. And they will not have the confidence or desire to instruct their children in the things of the Lord. We must have clear consciences before God. We must have ministers who humble themselves before God and believe on his word. Turn from their sins so they won't shy away from proclaiming the truth. Must have elders and deacons who have clear consciences in their personal lives, in their family lives, and in the execution of their offices. As office bearers, we may not scandalize God's people by undermining the gospel in their hearts by our own failure to live for the Lord or to keep our word. If as elders we say we're going to family visit, then we better family visit. If as deacons we're going to say we're going to care for the poor, then we better care for the poor. Because otherwise we undermine our credibility. And then what happens is the truth of the gospel gets undermined. Guard the truth. Guard the good deposit. And negatively, the apostle says, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. The apostle appears to go back to what we read at the beginning of the letter, where there's this, this profane talk. There were, remember we saw before, there were these apparently Jews who were interested in, in mapping out these genealogies, going beyond Scripture as to, to argue who's, who's related to who in the Bible, or, or, or embellishing and making up fables and and imaginary tales about Bible characters, or, or arguing about the law in different ways, and loving these novelties and controversies. And, and Paul tells Timothy, don't waste your time with this. Don't have anything to do with this stuff. Get away from it. 
But we could ask ourselves, what would be the appeal? Why would Timothy possibly want to engage in such silliness? And the answer is, probably, that those who were so glad to peddle these novelties wanted to gain a following for themselves. They wanted to please men. They wanted to tickle ears. They wanted to entertain. And so John Calvin says it well in his sermon. Here the apostle addresses those who have been called to preach the gospel and to lead the flock of our Lord Jesus Christ. They cannot, he says, do their duty unless they forsake all ambition and the wish to please men. They must dismiss all such things as rubbish, being content to build up the church, to work for the salvation of souls, to exalt the majesty of Jesus Christ, and to bring everyone in obedience to God. In short, it should be enough for them to set forth the simple truth of the gospel and to enrich those who want to be fed with the good things of God. Let them be content with that and not be like many who long for men's esteem and who desire to be applauded whenever they engage in high-flown chatter, parade their learning, display their sharp wits, and put on a show. All these things, says Paul, must be cast aside or God and his church will never be served. Timothy, don't fall into it. Don't try to be something great. Preach the simple and pure and glorious gospel. Turn away from those who think they have a knowledge. You know, in the decades to come, Gnosticism would become a great heresy. This idea that there's this higher knowledge that you can attain to. Paul says here already that some have what is falsely called knowledge. We have that so often today, don't we? All the cults around us, what are they? But they're these, these thoughts that there's a, an elite knowledge that you can gain access to. No, the word of God is open for all who would read it. It's not about some hidden truths open to just a few, the elite. It's a book that can be read by all and where the Spirit gives eyes understood Paul says some have, in seeking that false knowledge, wandered. They've strayed. He had earlier said in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, that some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. It's a deadly thing to turn from the truth. So prize it as a sparkling treasure. And then guard it in view of the constant threats. But finally tonight, trust the gospel as the source of our ongoing strength. The gospel Timothy is called to defend is the same gospel that defends us. All of Paul's epistles end with a a final blessing that begins with grace. And this one too, at the end here we read... Grace be with you. Now, what is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor, his undeserved favor, his equipping and sustaining power, undeserved. In most of Paul's epistles, he says the grace of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say Jesus Christ here, but of course, that's what he's speaking of, and he assumes his readers will understand it. 
Because there is no grace but in Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, we can't expect God's favor but his disfavor, right? His judgment, his condemnation. That's all we've merited by our sin. But through Jesus Christ, as our sin is paid for and righteousness obtained for us, we're restored to God and he smiles upon our lives. He gives us his favor through Christ. Why does Paul end this way? He actually began the letter this way too, didn't he? He begins his letter with that greeting, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. He ends the letter, grace be with you. We, of course, make use of these in our, in our worship services, don't we? We have a greeting and we have a benediction. We, we, we mirror in our worship service the way these epistles are written. Because we have no access to God and we have no going out from God with blessing but by God's grace. And Timothy needs that grace. How's Timothy going to stand strong? Timothy is in a place where apostasy is setting in. People are turning from the Lord. People are amused with all these novelties and these new doctrines. Timothy has congregational members who are, all, who are all excited about these things these false teachers are bringing. Timothy might be very tempted to engage all of this. Timothy needs grace. How will he press on? How will he stand firm? But by grace. In the next letter, 2 Timothy 1 verse 14, the apostle will tell Timothy, that good thing, that beautiful thing that was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Well, there it is. You work to keep it because the Spirit's working in you. God's grace. Brothers and sisters, this is our only hope. We're not so wise in ourselves. We're not so strong in ourselves. We're not so perceptive as to see all Satan's schemes and lies. We're not, we're not so persevering as to keep going. Our hope is God's grace. That God who's loved us in Christ and sought us in Christ is going to keep us in Christ and keep the gospel in us. Christ says that his sheep are in his hand. And there in his Father's hand, who's greater than all, we won't be snatched away. And so we must pray, not just work, but pray. Pray before we work and while we work and after we work. Pray and work. Pray for grace. Pray to the Father who is not subject to Satan's schemes. Pray to our Christ who is a true shepherd who guards and keeps. Pray to the Spirit who knows everywhere where Satan's at work. Pray to the Son of God who holds us safely in his care. And as we see that we live by grace, then we have no reason to be half-hearted in our efforts to guard the gospel. We work because God is at work in us and God is at work for us. Grace be with you. This is the precious good news. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that the weight of your final charge to Timothy here in this letter might also weigh upon us. Well, Lord, we acknowledge our own carelessness with your gospel in our hearts, in our homes. We confess, O Lord, it's easy for us to think that We'll never lose it. We pray, Father, that you would arrest our hearts with your word and you'll teach us 
to labor to know your word, to know how to interpret your word, and to hold it close so that it won't be lost to us or to successive generations if Christ should tarry. We pray, Lord, that you would be our great protector. We thank you that you are our great keeper. We acknowledge Satan is far too great an enemy for us. We could not stand for a moment in our own strength. But shield us and help us, refresh us, strengthen us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.